Good morning, everyone. Those of you who are here in person and those of you who are watching online, we're so glad that you've all chosen to be here. If you're visiting with us, if you're new, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about our church. We are a group of imperfect people. Imperfect people. If you're looking for a perfect church, this is probably not for you. But we are an imperfect group of people who have found hope in Christ Jesus. We have found hope through Jesus, and that has changed everything about our life. And we want to live with purpose. We want to live intentionally in a way that our community and our state and our country and our world know that we're here because we are glorifying Jesus. Every person here has a place in this church because we live on purpose. Today I'm excited to introduce to you Tyler as we begin a new series, a series called Joy to the World. And we're going to focus on a, a special piece of God's Word that's found in a letter. I want to give you a little bit of the context before I turn Tyler loose. This is a passage that's found in a letter that Paul wrote in prison. He was in house arrest. He was writing to a church that he had planted, a church that he loved, a letter that we call Philippians. Paul was there in Rome in house arrest, and he found out from someone who came and told him about this church that there's some, there's some disunity that's taking place. There's some um, arguing, some quarreling, perhaps some complaining, and Paul felt urged to write to that church. You would think that at this point, if Paul's going to address disunity, that he would pull out his scroll that had a label on it, systematic theology, and that Paul would write that he would give some points, some paragraphs. But Tyler is going to tell us what Paul does. Tyler came to our church as part of the Aggies for Christ. When was that? Uh, 2014. Back in 2014, okay. And uh, while you were here, you studied, but more importantly, you Man, found the love yeah. of your life. Jaina, <laughs> Jaina's sitting up here. Jaina, raise your hand. Tyler's <laughs> mother's here. and Family, we're glad that you're here to support uh, Tyler as well. Tyler, you finished with a degree in what? Uh, just now? No. Oh, Child Professional Services. Child Professional Services at A&M. All right. But, but while he was here in Agus for Christ, he found out that he really loved studying God's Word more than he loved studying about <laughs> education child and Child Professional right. Services. Right. <laughs> and so when you finished at A&M, you decided to continue your studies, and uh, you've about to finish your master's degree at Dallas Theological Seminary. How many days? Uh, Friday. Last Whoa, day. Friday. He's going to finish. You know, it's not easy. Yes. 
It's not easy to go to school and have a full-time job, but you've pulled it off. You wanted to quit a lot of times, I know, but you stuck with it. Way to go, Tyler. So so we go to this letter here, Philippians chapter 2. And Paul does something really special in this letter that you're going to tell us about. I am. (laughs) But before... Before we get into Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, I hope that you're turning to it right now because you're going to need to take notes. You're going to need to, to really be able to write down lots of things. that are, This is going to be some good stuff here. Get ready for it. Before we get going, we're going to have a prayer. Dear God, I am so thankful that Tyler has, and Jaina have been part of our church. Thank you for sending them to us. Thank you, Father, for um, this, the way that they've blessed our church. And now, Father, I pray that you be with Tyler as he teaches us from your word. I pray that you help him to speak guided by your spirit, filled with boldness. And I pray that you be with our hearts, Father, as listeners, that they will be open. Father, More importantly, we know that you are a God that changes hearts. And so, Father, as we hear your words, I pray that our hearts will be open and that your spirit will change us, mold us, and help us leave here more committed to living in a way that honors you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. Like he said, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, and it will be super helpful if you have a Bible. I know that's like a thing every preacher says because they want you to have a Bible, but it will be important, because I'll be really heavily addressing it. Uh, So in Philippians chapter 2, we get this interesting section of uh, really theology, and Kelly kind of addressed that, that in this this strange section, Paul doesn't go the systematic theology route as much as I would like him to. He's a lot better of a pastor than that. He gives us a poem, but that poem is, of course, like all things, set in a context. The problem in Philippi, like all of Paul's letters, They're written to address a problem, Galatians, right? Uh, These Christians are trying to come back under the yoke of the law, and Paul is pleading with them not to do that. Colossians, there's worldly wisdom infecting the church, and he's trying to teach them that the sources of these worldly wisdom has been crucified with Christ on the cross. Those gods have been defeated. And Philippians is much the same way. It's disunity. Now, Ephesians and Romans is also about disunity, but those are on the basis of racial disunity, Romans and Ephesians are on the basis of Jew and Gentile. They're uh, being uh, apparently just racist towards each other, and they don't want each other in the church. And so Paul has to write these long letters to explain the basis for Gentile inclusion into the people of God. Now, Philippians is also about unity and disunity, but it's not uh, along racial lines in any way. And it's not really, it seems, it's not really even over something that important. The Philippian disunity is just over something that's not dogmatic. It's over something just in the form of of an opinion. It's just disunity over gray area. You can see that because Paul doesn't even give them the answer to whatever it is they're disunified about in the whole letter. He doesn't give them the answer that we want. What's probably happening in the Philippian church is kind of revealed in chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. He finally kind of shows his hand and shows that these two women who at one point were foundational for being co-workers with Paul, laborers in the gospel, he says, but now they're causing division in the church. And like many church divisions go, it's not just these two people causing problems, it's they are leading whole factions astray. They are the leader of a church split and many people are going with us. 
similar to Corinthians. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. It's not just those two people saying that. It's all the people that they are leading astray into division. So he tells these two women, Eudoia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord as you once did. Agree in the Lord. That's Paul's whole point in Philippians, unity and agreement. Now, the way that Paul structures his letter is pretty interesting. He, he does in Philippians what he always does. He puts in the middle of his letter this backbone, uh, this spine. And much like your backbone, if you don't have a backbone, you're not that useful. And same thing in Philippians. In, in Ephesians 2, for example, both halves of, of Ephesians 2 is the backbone that holds the whole letter together. And if you pull that out, it's just a bunch of disjointed statements about spiritual health that has nothing really to do with the problem Paul's addressing. Philippians 2, in this poem, is much the same way. This is the backbone that holds the whole book together. It's not just a poem where Paul decides to randomly, randomly be uh, you know, artistic all of a sudden. That's not really what's going on. What he, what he does is this beautiful statement in chapter 2, verse 2, and this little preamble to this poem so you can see why he wrote the poem. It says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being one in spirit and of one mind. I hope you caught that. Paul says in four different ways in one sentence what his intentions are. Like-minded, one in spirit, one in mind, being of the same love. His goal is unity. There is no shadow of a doubt what Paul's intentions are. He says, I mean, if you have a professor who says the same thing in four times in four different ways in one sentence, it's probably on the test. It's exactly what Paul is doing. He puts it in four different ways in one sentence. So the goal is unity. His path to getting there, though, is rather odd. In verse 3, if we're looking at how that unity is achieved, so chapter or verse 2 is what the intention is, unity. Verse 3 and 4 is how that unity is achieved. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's how unity happens. That's how unity happens. Verse 5, he continues to go, though, if that is the solution to how we bring about unity, in verse 4, verse 5 is continuing, continuing how we bring about unity. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So, so that is the context in which we receive our beloved poem. Be unified. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Count others as more valuable than yourselves. How? Because that seems pretty hard. It says, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Okay, how? And then he gives us a poem or a hymn, pretty much just a sung poem. I found it odd, though, that he gives a poem, and I want you to wrestle with that as well. And I tried to figure out why, and my best explanation is this. If Paul is trying to change your mindset, mindsets are fundamentally hard to change. Mindsets take time to change. They take a long persistence of changing someone's mindset, and it takes a long time to build or break down a mindset. Just think of people who were born and raised in cults, for example. It takes years to build that mindset in that cult, but then years to break it down and get that out of them, that cultish mindset. Mindsets take a long time, so he gives them a poem, not an answer. Because poems, like the Psalms, are meant to be read and reread. Poems, like the Psalms, are supposed to be wrestled with and wrestled through. You're supposed to think about them, meditate upon them. 
You're supposed to, to see what the implications are for you. It's something that you can't just read once and then it's a command to follow. It's something you have to constantly live out and understand the full implications of what he's saying. So if it's true he gives us a poem to shape our mindset over the long haul, then that means that there's no tip or trick you can learn to work towards unity, which bothers me as someone who just went through in and out of seminary. I'd love if he just gave me an answer I could tell people, but Paul knows that doesn't bring about unity. What brings about unity is this mindset of Christ. There's no tip or trick you can learn as just a quick fix to unity. It is a lifestyle of self sacrificial service and love to others. That is how unity is brought about in the church. Also, if he gives us a poem, this means that poems cannot quickly leave your mind when you quickly leave here. It has to stay with you. That's the whole point of the poem. If you, if you read through this poem and quickly let it forget you, it was completely pointless because poems have to stay with you. You have, to, you have to wrestle with it and think through it in every area of life that it would apply to. Why a poem? Why a poem or a hymn and not an answer? That bothers me. But why doesn't he just give Eudoia and Syntyche and the whole Philippian church the answer to who's right and wrong? It would be a lot easier if they could just say, Eudoia, you're right. Syntyche, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Just side with Eudoia on this one. Now all of you come together. But Paul knows that disagreement is not the source of disunity. He tells us to be of one mind, heart, not one answer. Now, again, I want to rehash, this is not something dogmatic. It's not like Eudoia is denying the bodily resurrection of Christ, and Paul says, well, just ignore that for the sake of unity. That's not what he's saying. This is something that is gray area, something that's, you could say, opinion. And he's saying that the way to unity is through self-sacrificial love. Answers don't bring about unity. If anything, being told you're right and others are wrong will just bring about more disunity. And he knows that's not what he wants in this situation. I mean, I can imagine him sitting in prison, hearing from Epaphroditus, the man we'll learn about later who brings this a message to him of division within the Philippian church. And Epaphroditus tells him all about Eudoia and Syntyche and the divisions in the church and the infighting and what they're arguing about and, and what one side says about this and what one side argues for this. And Paul, being the great pastor he is, looks right through that and sees the actual infection that is spreading throughout the Philippian church. It's selfishness and pride. Because disagreement is not the source of disunity. Pride is the source of disunity. Selfishness is the source of disunity. And that's why he gives us a poem to solve this. Because working pride and selfishness out of our wicked hearts takes a long time. It's not a quick fix of a verse. It's a poem that must be meditated upon and read and reread. It's hard, though, and uh, in my flesh, I don't like that. It's hard because it makes the problem of disunity my problem. It's not when someone else starts to see it my way, then we can work towards unity. That's the world's way of doing things. It's once I want to work towards unity, I turn it back in on myself, and it's my problem to lay down selfishness and pride and move towards others. It's a lot harder to turn it and say, unity is my problem, even if you're right. <laughs> Man, you want to apply something to marriage, Apply that to marriage. Your disunity with your spouse is not because they refuse to see it your way. Your disunity with your spouse is your pride because you demand that they see it your way. That's pride. And that's what causes disunified marriages and disunified friendships or roommates. It's because you, you demand that people see things your way. Pride and selfishness cause disunity, not disagreement. So... He gives us a poem. How then are we to have the mindset of 
Christ. He gives us this beautiful poem called the Kenosis poem. Kenosis just means emptying because in this poem it says Christ was emptied for us. In verse 6 he says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, or I think other translations, something to be held to his own advantage. few words in there that are really important. Form. Though he was in the form, on here it says the very nature of God. That word, morphe in Greek, is not just uh, like he's not a shapeshifter. It's not just he's one thing and then appears as another. Form is the very essence of your being. His form is that he's God. That's why one sentence later he says, though he was equal with God, because for you to be the form of God, the very essence and nature of your being, so I think nature is a good word, the nature of your being is to be God. He's using that word, though, because he's about to use a word play on that word, because he's going to say he takes the form of a slave. That other word did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped after. Another really strong word, and that, that word really is a lot stronger than grasped. I like the word seized or robbed, as the King James has it. It's what pirates do when they take over your ship. They take for their own advantage everything that's yours. That's what he's saying is he didn't consider his own status of being equal with the Father, something to be taken for his own advantage and held over someone else's head. So I hope you see in that the Adam imagery. Adam, being an image of God, listens to the serpent who says, if you eat of that fruit of the tree, you can be like God's. And Adam says, you know what, you're right. And he grasped after that fruit, and what you find is he doesn't become like a god. He dies a humiliating death. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus does the opposite. Being God, he doesn't even consider that something to hold over your head. And instead, as the opposite of Adam, he comes down and becomes man and still dies a humiliating death, the death Adam deserved. Jesus does what Adam was never able to do. He does what Adam didn't have the humility to do, what Adam was too prideful to do. Adam is in the image of God and wants to be God. Jesus is God, and he becomes man. He does what Adam was never able to do, then takes the curse of Adam upon himself. Verse 7, it says, Rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Which is so fascinating that that same word form is right there. He is the form of God. And it's not that he stops being God and then becomes a human. It's that he is still God and also becomes human. So the word emptied there is just a little bit misleading. Because he empties himself, but we immediately think he empties himself of something. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is he empties himself. And how does he empty himself? He empties himself by taking on the form, the very essence, nature of a slave. Not just a man. Not just human, but a slave of all people. He becomes like you and I in every single way, and even more so. He becomes a slave to all. He uh, subtracts through addition is one way to look at it. He didn't give up being God, but he becomes less. He humbles himself by adding on the nature of the slave. And so now he's the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. He does not give up his divinity, but he takes on humanity. In verse 8, being found in that human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't just become man, not just a slave, but a slave who was obedient to the point of even a wrongful death hanging naked on a cross. The lowest of the low. And don't let this get lost on you that this is the mindset Paul is commending you to have. Don't sanitize it and say, that's what Jesus did for me. Make sure you remember that the whole point of Paul bringing up this poem is that he could say, this is the mindset you ought to have. 
So when it seems really drastic and you're in awe at what Jesus has done for you, remember, although it's about Jesus' mindset, it's the mindset you have and are supposed to have in Christ. Something I always say is, and a lot of you have probably heard this from me before, uh, if Christ can go from here to here, then you can go from here to here. And I think that's what, in a sense, Paul is trying to get us to see in every relationship in your life, in your marriages, with your kids, with roommates, with friends and coworkers. If Christ can be God and lay down his life, dying as a slave, miserable and naked on a cross, you can do that thing that annoys you a little bit. You'll be okay. It's Paul trying to draw our eyes towards the crucifixion and remind you that this is God hanging naked on a cross. This is how he wants us to bring about unity remembering the incarnation and his death. So verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a therefore in verse 9. If that was an and, this whole thing unravels. But it's a therefore Meaning, the path to Christ's exaltation and receiving the name that is above all names is through him incarnating and dying on a cross. It wasn't he just so happened to die on a cross and God so happened to raise him from the dead and exalt him. No, it's because he died naked on a cross, therefore he's exalted. Therefore he's given the name above all names. No one's gone from higher up to lower down than Christ. He is God and he died as a slave on a cross. So I'm just willing to say he's the final authority on teaching about authority. No one else gets to say how we do and don't use power and authority because no one has been higher or lower than Christ himself. And you'll learn that he was made higher, exalted because he made himself nothing. The way up is down. As Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, the mother of James and John asks him, can my son sit at your left and right hand in the kingdom? saying this to a man who's about to go give himself and be enthroned on a cross, dying for rebels. And he says, it's not mine to grant, you must ask the Father, but you don't know what you're asking. The rulers of the Gentiles exercise lordship over each other. That's how the world does things, but it is not so in my kingdom. In my kingdom, whoever will be the greatest among you must become a slave. I did this last service too, I promise, I'm not manufacturing it. Same part too. Whoever would be the greatest among you must become a slave. And that man walked into Jerusalem and he washed the nasty feet of some boys, two of which would turn against him, and then he died on a cross for people who didn't want him. He says, whoever would be the greatest must become a slave. Power isn't the problem. It's how power is achieved is the problem. That's what this Philippian church needs to hear. You become great by making yourself nothing. Even Christ himself was not exempt from that. Whoever is the most powerful in the room is whoever has made themselves nothing. I think of Paul. When you decide and resolve in your own heart that you're the servant of everyone, no one can do anything to you. What are you going to do to Paul? Stone him? He'll get back up and say, thank goodness we got that over with, and then walk into town and preach the gospel. You can flog him, but he says in Galatians, I bear on my body the marks of my faithfulness to the Messiah. It's sanctifying to be flogged doesn't feel good, but it's what God wants me to do because I suffer like Jesus suffered. You can throw him in prison, but in Acts, he converts the guard and then converts all the prisoners, has them singing hymns, and then gets finally a chance to write letters like this one. Finally, he gets some office time. 
and you can kill him, but he's already said in Philippians to live as Christ, to die as gain. You cannot do anything to Paul because he's already resolved in his heart that he is the servant of everybody. Pull it together. It gets me emotional thinking about God himself coming to flesh and dying for others. And Paul trying to embody that mindset in everything that he does. So your power is not in you being extroverted and picked to be leader all the time. Your power is when you are a no-name, nobody. You've made yourself the servant of all. Like Paul says in Corinthians, the dishonorable parts, those are actually the honorable parts. Those who have made themselves nothing, those who embody this mindset, that's power. That's power. I wish the world could hear that. This is how power works. Through making yourself nothing, even God was not exempt from that. Don't let this get lost on you. Uh, as we approach Christmas, don't let the idea of Christ in a manger get lost on you. Remember, not only did he do that for you, but what he is doing through that incarnation is embodying the mindset you ought to have. You look at the humility of God in a manger, and you say, that is the mindset I am called to have. And he doesn't go up from the manger. He doesn't get less humble as he moves from the manger. The manger is actually the peak. And he lives a life of slavery and sacrifice, continuing down and down in more humility and serving others until he's on a cross. The, the manger is the peak. I love that. Do not let this get lost on you. And the way to let this get lost on you again is to say, oh, that's what Christ did for me. And although that's true, I'm not taking that away. But it can get lost on you if you forget that that is the mindset you are called to have. A manger mindset. A Christmas-centered worldview, not just presents and stuff and commercialization, but a Christmas-centered worldview, one that is God in flesh dying on a cross, being born into the likeness of flesh. A Christmas-centered worldview is what causes unity in the church, not agreement. Paul knows that this is hard. I love that it's hard, and I know that Paul knows it's hard because it gives you three examples of this, one of himself, one of Timothy, and one of that guy, Epaphroditus. Talking about himself in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 22, if I am going to live on in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the flesh. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy. Paul is saying, it is better for me in every way to die in prison because I get to see the Lord Jesus face to face, but it's actually labor and hard if I stay in the flesh and work for you. I'm hard-pressed between the two, he says. And he doesn't seem all that hard-pressed because it takes him zero seconds to figure out what he's going to do. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, but convinced of this, I know what I'll do. I'll stay in the flesh for your account. I'll try to avoid dying. Uh, he literally postpones seeing his Lord face to face to serve these Philippians who can't stop arguing about stuff. Paul is trying to show you that he himself is embodying this incarnational mindset. Paul himself is living the life and living with that mindset that he is commending these Philippians to have. Paul himself is not exempt from this. He's making himself nothing. and He says, I will remain in the flesh because that is better for your spiritual progress, progress and your joy. That's the world that he's trying to get us to have. 
Just as Christ took on flesh and dwelled with us to serve at great cost to himself, Paul is trying to do the same thing and get those Philippians and, by extension, us to do the very same thing as well. Do whatever it takes to serve others at great cost to yourself. The second example, Timothy. Paul does something odd. He pulls into the center of his letter clerical work. He usually puts towards the end of his letters, uh, I'm sending Timothy, bring some parchment. Can you bring my coat in one instance? Um, I'm going to try to come by winter, tell so-and-so I said hi. And he pulls into the middle of this letter, by the way, right after this Christ hymn, he says, I'm sending you Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's like, now you have to tell us that? Just put that in the end. We don't need to know that right now. But what he says about Timothy in chapter 2:19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive good news about you. I have no one else like him. He will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests. I wonder who he's talking about. Not those of Christ Jesus. I think the Philippians heard that loud and clear. He doesn't need to explain what he's saying. But what he's saying is, I will send you Timothy, because what is Timothy like? Timothy embodies this incarnational, Christ-centered mindset. He's willing to serve you and put your interest above his own. That's exactly from the Christ poem. Look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. So I'll send you Timothy as an example so you can see in flesh what that looks like since I have to remain here in prison. Next, he sends Epaphroditus right after that, chapter 225. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Indeed, he was ill near to death. And Paul's concerned because they had heard that he was ill. He says, yeah, indeed he was ill. He almost died, but God had mercy on him. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in service to me. He says, I'll send you Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know what Epaphroditus is like? He got sick and almost died serving me while I'm wrongfully imprisoned. That's as low and humble as it gets. So he sends Epaphroditus and says, honor men like this. These are people who embody this worldview. I'm not sending Epaphroditus with the answer to your problem. I'm not sending him back to who's right, you doyer syntyche. I'm not sending him back with the solution to the Philippian argument. I'm sending him back because he embodies this Christ-centered incarnational mindset. He puts others' interest above his own, even to the point of death by sickness, just like Christ, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Paul says, chapter 317, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul gives them this command. I'm sending you Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look to them and imitate them. Then you'll have unity. Be like them. Imitate us. I love that because that's discipleship. This isn't new. This isn't a new thing to Paul, or to them it is, because they're Gentiles, but this isn't a new thing to Paul. Find faithful men who embody this worldview and imitate them and honor them. So, Philippians, so A&M Church, honor such men and women. Find someone older than you that embodies this worldview and copy them. Do everything that they do. That's discipleship, and that's how unity is brought about. Find faithful men and women who copy this worldview, and then you will be so humble you serve everyone unto death, just like Christ. That's not a bad thing. So, finally, um, 
Look in this poem at what Christ overcame to be unified to you, us of all people. Look what he overcame. He left heaven, took on flesh, and died on a cross. All to be unified to you. If that's true, then what Paul is trying to teach is that unity must be pursued. Our natural state is not unity. I don't know if you've looked outside the past three years. Our natural state as people isn't unity. Our natural state is to rebel against God and move towards disunity because of our flesh. That's our natural state. We drift towards disunity. So unity must be pursued and fought for. You must meditate and think about this poem. Think through it. Wrestle with it and fight for unity. Your natural state is not disunity. Your natural state is to want to show up late and leave early and don't talk to anyone and get involved in the lives of others. That's your natural state. So unity must be pursued. That's what Christ did. He left heaven to pursue you dying on a cross. So how can I say, well, people's lives are a little messy. I think I'll take a break for this season. People's lives are messy. Yeah, it's pretty messy that Christ had to die on a cross to be unified to you. I think you'll be okay. I think that's what he's trying to tell these Philippians. If it's true that this is what Christ did to bring about unification to us, then avoiding others is fake unity. Man, that's a problem. Fake unity, right? You stay, so, you stay far enough away from other people, you never get involved enough in their lives that there's ever a potential for disunity, but you will never experience the true joy of being unified to other believers, I promise. It looks really good on the outside because no one's arguing, but it looks really bad on the inside because everyone's leaving and not really being unified to one another. Unity has to be pursued. Unity has to be fought for. And avoiding other people is fake unity. Christ did not avoid you. He had every right to stay with the Father and not come die for a sinful humanity who rejected him. He had every right to do that, but he didn't. He drew near to us so that we could see his mindset and draw near to others. Avoiding others is fake unity. There is great joy that is found in being unified to others, but that doesn't mean it's not without cost. I would hope you'd say there's great joy in being unified to Christ and the cross, but that doesn't mean it came without cost. He had to die, and you had to die to yourself. But there's great joy in being found. Like all good things, great joy comes with great difficulty. Marriage, relationships, work, everything. Great joy comes through being unified to other believers. But that takes hard work. That is very messy to be unified to others. So if you don't, the easy way out is just don't get involved. The easy way out is just distance yourselves from others enough that you never have to get involved in the mess of your life. And I promise you will be miserable. And you'll keep hopping from church to church maybe or group to group, hoping to be unified to others as long as it doesn't really require anything of you. And you'll realize that is impossible from this poem. It took Christ being killed to be unified to you. So why would we think we're any different? So I would beg you, do not let this poem quickly leave you as you quickly leave here. If this parking lot doesn't make, if this parking lot, if this poem doesn't make it to the parking lot, it's failed. I think the best thing this, the, the enemy can do is take those seeds that have been sown and they sprout for a moment and then are quickly taken away by the time you go to lunch. Poems have to be fought through. What if you read one thing all week, these five verses? You don't have to wake up and read 15 chapters of First Chronicles every week. What if you woke up and meditated and thought, thought, uh, thought through these five verses and what they mean for us in being unified? Okay. If you'd like to talk to someone more about what it means to just submit to the Lordship of Christ, shepherds will be available in the Welcome Center on me, I guess, if you want to talk to me. But they'll be available. So uh, um, we're going to move into Monty singing and everything, but I'm going to pray us out. God, thank you so much for this text, and thank you so much for 
the power of this poem, God. I pray that this poem would sit with us and you would use it to change our hearts, God, that we would see the world through this lens of the incarnational mindset, God, the mindset that lays down our lives to serve others. I pray that this would not quickly leave us, God. Bring it back to our attention over and over this week about what Christ went through in order to be with us and unified to us, God. I pray that we would embody this. Your sons, let me pray. Amen.